We got to start it off with a three, two, one. Let's, Let's go. go. Alan Morgan. I like it. Came in on point, sir. I'm glad to be here. It's it's you know what? It's really good to meet you in person. Great. Yeah. Right. We've done a Zoom. Uh, we've learned a lot about Bell Geospace. We learned a lot about gravity and its importance in the industry. And I think I know for sure the industry is seeing value every time they dig into the gravity data and the magnetics that like they're looking at the information that you guys are collecting, the data you're collecting, and then tying it into geochemistry like Geomark does. They're, they're integrating it into their workflows. They're integrating it into their assets. You guys are providing value in the Permian Basin. Tell us a little bit about yourself, just Alan Morgan, highlight, introduction, and then specifically let's dive into uh, into the Permian and ultimately into your little presentation. Yes, so uh, my name is Alan Morgan. I'm a geophysicist with Bell Geospace. My background is rooted in geology. My degrees are in geology and hydrogeology. So uh, that led me into a career uh, that uh, got an entry uh, when it, at a low time when I was assigned to do gravity and magnetic work for Fugo and Gravity Magnetic Services. Right on. And uh, that has uh, sparked an interest in geophysics and things that are beneath the ground that you cannot see from the surface. Um, and it, it's amazing when you start to increase resolution, the differences and scale of the things that you can see yeah. that uh, range from the regional down to the prospect level. So yep. it's quite exciting to be able to see new data over old basins and then you, when you can find new information. Man, tying that to production, tying it to where people have drilled, where successes are, and then you're seeing the contrast of gravity specifically, like in the Permian Basin, gravity specifically, how it's changing, the shapes it makes, how it's correlating to the wells, how it's correlating to the information that we have from all these other types of disciplines or other data points that we have. Can you walk us through basic, just the acquisition of the gravity data that's in the Permian Basin that you guys have, the process of that, and kind of what the data is representing? Yes. So basically, gravity is collected from the ground. Historically, it's been collected from ground instrumentation. With gravity gradiometry, uh, which was historically developed for subsea navigation for submarines, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a passive system that detects density contrast in three directions. So it's seeing the change in density over space, in, like I said, X, Y, and Z dimensions. So we fly a Bassler, which is a converted uh, DC-3. They've added new avionics and uh, Pratt & Whitney turboprop engines so it can fly slow and steady and low to the ground. <laughs> and it collects very stable data that can be uh, interpreted into the subsurface depending on the size and shape and density contrast. So, so this plane's this plane is is kind of belly up how it flies right it kind of flies like that it's not exactly like that it's, it's pretty not, flat and it stable. is pretty flat yeah it's okay i thought flat. it was it was favorable because it did kind of have a tilt to it but i've seen pictures of these things and it's like world war ii era like some but, of the original airframes are back to the 30s and it wow it present challenges on getting into uh, countries that have arcane uh laws that uh, don't recognize that the plane's been refit with new avionics and uh, it comes out of the assembly line as a, as a new plane according to the FAA. Now the the amount of data that you've collected with the gravity uh, gradiometer gradiometer is that the, the yes. name of the machine 
the gradiometer that's in that plane. You flew it over the Permian, a section of the Permian Basin, what, 100 square miles, something like that? At least, yes. Sheesh. It's about oh. 40 by 50 kilometers, uh, 40 kilometers east-west, 50 kilometers north-south, most Sheesh. of it in Reeves County. And we Man. saw things that we didn't expect to see. <laughs> which is, That's what makes it more exciting. Yeah. So you got the publicly available gravity data, right? And that's surface equipment. That's a... Yes. It's, it's the, a legacy data set that uh, there are still people that acquired data to infill it. Uh, and that does a really good job at defining the overall basin geometry. It, and it picks up where some of the shelves are. But we take it to the next level by the, being able to see fabric. Be seeing... Uh, a weathering surface and weathering patterns, uh, fault dissolution collapses, all kinds of things that sometimes are missed by even 3D seismic. Man, so the the publicly available gravity data that's a that's a gradiometer that's sitting on the surface, and then they move it and well, get not another... a gradiometry. It's only seeing one direction, which is down. Oh, yes. And it's a so they they take it out to a location, they get the XY, they run the machine, get collect the data, and then they move to another to station. It, to another station they do it again yes when that when that one dimension reading happens how much rock is it looking at how much of the crust is well, it, it actually sees the cumulative effect you're looking at the full acceleration of gravity at a specific point which is from the core to the crust yes it's the cumulative wow. effect. wow wow that is freaking cool now okay so you said one dimension in the in the gravity kind of old legacy data as you as you mentioned when you're flying and you're getting a constant reading now over that whole area on a on a line for 40 kilometers that machine's running constantly it is it's a now we, we downsample it to uh one hertz which is uh, the instrument is traveling the plane is traveling at about 60 meters per second so we're getting a, a, a unique reading for all of our channels every 60 meters Jeez. depending on the speed of the craft but i mean that that's an average speed 60 meters a second man okay so and it, and you specifically said density you're yes that's how you, when you see data when you see gravity you're looking you see density of rock yes or density of the crust it, it we see density contrast so for example uh, a flat lying rock that has no relief will not produce a signal however if you put an offset in it that will produce a perturbance, which is lateral density contrast that will be measured. Okay. So it does depend on the magnitude of contrast and the amount of offset. Man. Okay. So you, you ran this hundred squares or uh, 40 by 50 kilometer run in the Permian Basin, Delaware Basin side, Reeves County over the Grisham Fault, over the Mid Basin Fault. And then south of that, north of that, you guys have a, a nice big footprint in that county yes. of solid. How, what was the line spacing? 100 on? meters. The lines were flown north-south. Every 100 meters, we had a, a, <laughs> a, a new line uh, basically mowing along from north to south. <laughs> how long did that take? It really didn't take that long. It was over in just a few weeks. Wow. Yeah. So he's just running lines, getting fuel, back up there, running lines, getting fuel. And as long as he keeps a steady pace, the machine's doing the cycle and it's capturing that data. We also have to monitor conditions of uh, weather. Uh, okay. Also with uh, solar uh, intensity, you get more thermals and which leads to vertical accelerations. We have a cutoff for uh, depending on uh, what the field crew is monitoring on, uh, on our actual flights. If we reach a th certain threshold, we'll have to call it a day because the data will just right? be too noisy. Is that right? Yes. You can't deconvolve the... 
well, we want to reduce as much as yeah. possible of, of yeah. any noise source. So, so you say, hey, go take a break, come back tomorrow. Flight the next day, otherwise it's costing us too much money for reflights. Sheesh. Yeah. Wow. So you've had data sets where they come back and, and you're like, no, you got to refly this. It happens on occasion. Wow. Wow. I mean, that's the point of the industry being 100 plus years old or gravity being what goes back to the 40s or something. When were we oh, getting yes. those? I, well, actually, before that, the grandfather of the gradiometer is the torsion balance. And that was a, there were instruments being developed in Germany in the 1920s. And, wow. and before. So we actually have it? one in our office. Is that right? Yes. Dang it. But that one single point for a, a torsion balance, you would literally have to set up the instrument, stabilize it, level it, and put a shed around it so that the effect of wind wouldn't affect it. And it has to sit for 12 hours before they can get a good quiet reading and then move it to another station. Now, why did they even make that? Why well, it saw, it saw, using a pendulum type system, it saw the, the change in gravity in, in, X, in lateral uh a lateral setting. So they were detecting salt domes with early, early torsion balances. Whoa. So before that, a lot of explorers, they, look, they looked at hints in the topography, a, right. a local swell or something right. that, that keyed them in onto a local structure. Right. But what we're going to get to here in the Permian, the first discovery well, they weren't looking for all. They were looking for water. Nice. Yeah. Hear that a lot. Yeah. Hear that a lot. We're, we're out there drilling for water and this is probably in the twenties or something. Oh, 1903, like. actually. 1903. So the gentleman who drilled this well was a county commissioner out of Toya, Texas. His name was J.D. Leatherman. And the railroad, the Texas and Pacific Railroad needed water for steam engines. They needed a good supply of water. And so wow. everybody who had acreage out here were looking for a supply to get feed water to not only feed their cattle or, or livestock they also tried to sell access to the railroad wow that is pretty cool yeah so that's that's a yeah so that makes sense now the okay so the original gravity gradiometer was uh in germany was for salt domes they were looking for or, or any kind of subsurface structure okay. looking, yeah, they yeah, were looking they for were, anaclines and salt domes were a big uh, uh they were a big target they're they kind of like the bright spots before seismic Oh man. All right. So do you have a flash drive and you want to go through some slides or you just want to talk about the deck? Uh, let's talk about the deck. You got okay. that loaded. We are in the Permian basin. We're looking up at the screen. This is an old Texas railroad. These are some of the first geologic maps produced in the area. And as you can see, we're looking at a map of the projected path of the Texas and Pacific railroad. Uh, Pope and his expedition in, uh, in the 1850s, they were looking for water supplies. I mean, yeah. originally you had to get the, on the uh, mic. Oh, sorry. We can slide. You can slide the mic over. Or, okay. Yeah. So you can see or however you want to do it. So originally you had the Overland stage group coming through this area for traveling west. Okay. And this was that the earliest expeditions were trying to uh, designate a path for a railroad to come through, which was the Texas and Pacific. Whoa. So they were looking for water. Yeah. Uh, was they were looking for other critical uh, minerals. And at the time, sulfur and water and salt, those were all critical minerals. Wow. So uh, the first, uh, prior to 1901, basically you, you didn't have much uh, production. I mean, you, you had spindle top well that was drilled in East Texas. Right. But uh, there was not really much uh, of a prospect to find hydrocarbons out here in West Texas. So... Uh, a lot of the sulfur, uh, there, there were some sulfur occurrences that were observed, 
and there were uh, there was a bit of salt that was historically mined and carried across the border into Mexico from these salt flats. Yeah, but, uh, it was a very inhospitable area to live. <laughs> I mean, the natives, some of the archaeological sites that are in this area that are where the uh, the Rustler and Castile formations outcrop, where they have these rock shelters and cavern, uh, open caverns. I mean, that water, the locals were adapted to it, but it, you would uh, get the quick step if you drank it, if you were passing through. So it, wasn't, it was a uh, very inhospitable place to, wow. to travel through. And people probably wanted or would get to, to get the heck out of there as quickly as they could to wow. greener pastures. Wow. Now your data set, is Reeves County, so we're gonna dive into this yes. area right here. Okay, A Train, let's uh, let's switch it to a slide that's got a zoomed-in version of where we're gonna be talking about. Man, this so is we, we've already kind of touched on this, but if yeah. I can, I can talk on it again if you want no, to. No, let's yeah, yeah let's going. jump into the where the location is and yeah, look at the and data. This is looking at springs and sources. Do you have a copy of this presentation? Are you going through each slide? Is it, is uh, I don't have it recorded, but I gave it live in Midland. But, uh, okay. So you give you, you give this presentation normally. Keep going, A Train. So here we. This shows the surface geology and basically how they would use, how the earlier explorers would use well ties to kind of kind of infer uh, what the subsurface would be right before seismic. Now with surface, what do you need to know about the surface that affects gravity? Well. Obviously, the first density contrast that's going to be picked up from a plane is going to be the ground surface. Yeah. And we will often do a terrain correction that uh, attempts to minimize the effect of that. It, it's, it's impossible to do a full terrain correction because you do have changing lithology at the surface. So, for example, if you had a massive limestone that didn't have much porosity, that density okay. is going to be quite high. But if you have an unconsolidated sand that uh, basically you pick it up and it just falls through right. your fingers, that's going to be quite low density, around 1.8, 1.7 so grams per cubic centimeter. Do you do like surface, like 10, 10 foot holes that you're, you're sampling what the rock well, is? or We don't necessarily need to do that. Quite okay. a bit of that work has already been done. Sure. But if we see something that stands out, such as we saw in this survey, there were things I wanted to go check out and see what was going on. Because looking at the surface geologic maps, there wasn't a really good explanation for the amount of density contrast that we oh, saw. Wow, so, right on. Yeah. Hey, Train, let's uh, let's advance. Keep going, keep going. I want to see the data. Where are we at here? This is this still is talking the about the original well. Okay. Well, let, let's talk a little bit about this one. This. Oh, go back a slide. Yeah, to the one that shows the well. One more. This one. So th this is talking about the Leatherman well and how he encountered oil at uh, at basically 170 feet below the ground surface. Wow. Uh, it, it actually uh, came with after drilling. It came up into the uh, to the near surface. The, the the pressure was enough to bring it to within 30 feet of the ground surface. Wow! Uh, but it was a water <laughs> well, and it was not intending on uh, finding petroleum. Uh, of course. So this well and drilled in 1903 they didn't necessarily have a use for oil at that time and in, in the basin and the grade was not that great so they they sold this well in pecos to, to grease windmills <laughs> so now, now you can i love it all right a train let's advance advance okay. so this is a descriptive log of uh the surface mostly gypsum yes. gravel okay so blue you clay take that hard sand blue clay okay. now what they didn't necessarily match what 
is actually there uh, as far as a true descriptive formation uh, sure. description. They, they, there was a lot of uh, just basically material analysis, yeah. not necessarily formation analysis in Providence. So yeah. what they missed is that certain of this, a certain amount of this hard sand was most likely uh, rustler or uh, yeah. Uh, kind of there's, there's also a bit of a Cretaceous limestone in yeah. the area. There's Man. Cretaceous gravels, uh, and there's also unconsolidated uh, sands and uh, gravels mixed in with that. So, at cool. the time, they probably didn't have enough uh, descriptions of the the local section to know exactly what they're looking for. This is kind of more of an engineering approach to figuring out um, what is holding the, the the oil and how to get it out. Okay. All right. Let's advance. Okay, we are now di we're dived in pretty good here. We're looking at yes. well spots on a map. You got two things highlighted: a cluster of old wells here. That's the Leatherman area. Yes, this oh, is actually a close up of the Pamela Field, which is what the logs or the the the, uh, the database Texas database described this field as uh, upon its reentry in 1980. So <laughs> 1980, people came back in. They still didn't have good geophysics because seismic is still not going to give you a great image at 150 feet below yeah, the ground surface. Yeah. So these guys were just trying to repeat an earlier success. Now, before these guys came into the field, there were a few other attempts to try to find where this oil was coming from to find any sure. significant accumulation, uh, but they were met with uh, very little success. The first attempt came uh, from an a unnamed California company came in later in 1903. They drilled a mile and a quarter to the Southwest of the original Leatherman well. Mm -hmm. uh, they didn't find anything. Wow. And then they came in closer and they only found the traces of oil. Wow. And as we can see from the 1980 redevelopment where we defined two new clusters, that was that was, that was still um, a Clasology. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah. it was a wildcat. Wildcatting. Yeah. Wildcatting 101 right here. <laughs> so. All right. I, I'm, we, let's, so we're going to see gravity, uh, intense gravity survey right here over the under these wells. Yes. Okay. Let's jump into that. Let's look at some gravity and see what we what you see. I want to hear what you see. Next slide. Oh, oh this is fine. This is, okay. this is yeah, right here. the same clusters of wells. Okay. So okay. The the slide that you see on the right is the vertical gravity grade. I mean the vertical gravity component, the T Z, which is what if you if you had sixty meter sampling across the entire survey area at the uh, of course above the ground eighty meters. Yeah. This is what you would see from our data. So we see some complexity in in only in looking at the TZ. So when you see this image, the dark areas, the light areas, well, how are, what do you see? The reds are the warm colors are at an anomaly high. Okay. Which in, it's uh, looking at more dense rocks. Okay. Underneath that site, and the green and blue colors, which which is off the scale here, we do have green here. The cooler colors are going to be your gravity minima, and and we see that when we look at the gravity gradients, when we look at the XX the uh, YY, the ZZ. The ZZ is a uh, vertical gravity gradient. It's in the down direction. And we see the two clusters of wells. And they're yeah. on the flanks of, uh, well, first, the, the largest anomalies are actually flanking the field, defining the north and southern, northern and southern boundaries. Uh, Whoa. And of then low these density. other anomalies that are kind of coming into it uh -huh. are actually weathering structures or, or, or they're, uh, the result of dissolution collapse that has actually started to kind of uh, branch off of the original dissolution collapse. And, and I believe this is where we have compartmentalization of this reservoir. 
So the gravity data is picking up near surface karsting. Yes, and and the result of karsting, which is the final product would be dissolution collapse. So as karsting develops, first you form a void. And then after it gets to a large enough size, you collapse. Yep. And that collapse creates accommodation space. And the next thing that you're going to have coming in there is whatever available material is uh, being distributed along the surface, such as uh, sand, windblown dust, uh, gravel, whatever is, wow. is nearby. Super and, porous, yes, super permeable. Dependent on your sedimentation, yeah. Wow. Gosh, dang. Okay. So I've visited outcrops in the area. The, the, the sources of the largest anomaly high is you do have some areas where you have limestone outcropping at the surface. Really? And in, in these blue areas, they're actually uh, further to the southwest, there's Burnt Rock Hill. It's yeah. actually a topographic positive, but it is almost entirely composed of sand and gravel. And, and it, uh, <laughs> it's, it's the result of the, how I got there. It was filling this accommodation space from this large scale dissolution collapse. But you got a sand that's making a topographic high? Because it's been windblown and eroded around oh, it. It's been it piled up. It the gravel up behind because it's hard to erode. Uh, the dominant uh, uh, erosional uh, at the surface right now is windblown. Interesting. Interesting. Interpretation on how the sand, how the sand made the topographic high. It was perplexing when, at first. Yeah, because you, you got the void. You got space. You, got, you would think it just... Uh, you would think intuitively it should go into the lower parts yeah. right away, but no, it's stacked and, and up. And when we first saw the anomalies, that was the first thing we look at is there a, co a correlation to topography. Mm -hmm. And only in that one area around Burnt Rock Hill, we saw a topographic high, <laughs> but it is intense uh, anomaly, anomaly low that couldn't be, you could not explain even if you applied uh, ridiculous values for a terrain correction you couldn't get rid of it so that now, means it's not only at the surface but it extends deeper into the surface so when you when you're looking at near surface data like this are you somehow taking out like where the gravity is actually measuring near surface or is this still the total volume it, it's still a cumulative effect what we're seeing wow and the surface yeah. geology is totally matching up with these anomalies and, but it's it's but it also redefines the surface geology because the old maps <laughs> didn't quite get the full answer wow I mean, we, we do see uh, fossiliferous limestone along the edge that, that i assume is cretaceous in age and then we also have uh I mean, like i said the sands and gravels that are infilling it so wow that, that also brings up a question when did this dissolution collapse start to occur yeah that's so, right yeah. that's right Man, Alan, I, I can just sit and talk about this all day, but we yeah. have podcasts and we're going to get to shuffling in and getting more shows in. Uh, I would definitely like to, if you are up for it, for some of this stuff, to do a podcast and listen to that whole story. You have the, all the history put together and the idea and the fact that the gravity, the gravity data in a large 100 square miles or 40 by 50 kilometer area the gravity is seeing the near surface complexity, which drillers are wondering, you know, what's going to happen when I hit 200 feet here? Am I going to yeah. hit oil? How Am far hitting... do they need to put casing down? Right. Yeah. How, that, yeah. So the application of this is huge and you have just a small footprint. It's not a small footprint. That's a large footprint in, in, in regards to like a seismic survey mm -hmm. or well coverage. Like you guys are collecting a, a huge area pretty inexpensively incredibly a lot than 30 seismic acquisition <laughs> incredibly accurate it ties to the geology of the rocks that are at the surface and it 
it has an implication of it, drilling. It also costs. helps to discreetly define where velocity changes are happening that are shallower with, than you can even get a, a fold of one in your seismic. So, so when you go to try to start processing and calibrating seismic data, if you have it, this is helping to calibrate that model. Yes. Alan Morgan. Thank you, sir. You're welcome.